Welcome to Content Disrupted, Bold Takes on Brand Marketing. I'm your host, Casey Noble, and together we'll explore what it takes to excel in brand marketing at one of the most exciting and disruptive times in industry history. Welcome back to Content Disrupted, everybody. We're joined today by Patrick Ward. He's the current VP of Marketing at the Global Innovation Consultancy Formula Monks, and he's founder of NanoGlobals, which is an expert-led platform that helps tech companies grow business globally. Patrick's an expert in B2B marketing. He's driven astronomical growth at companies like Rootstrap and Dogtown Media. He's also a prolific writer, speaker, and thought leader who's been featured in the New York Times, Fast Company, and Business Insider. That's naming just a few. He's a member of the Forbes Communications Council, as well as a LinkedIn instructor and trainer. And in a recent LinkedIn testimonial, he was described as the father of marketing. So you're all about to find out why, but Patrick, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Casey. Awesome. So I love that you are what I would describe as a marketer's marketer. And by that, I mean, you're someone who thinks in a very clear-eyed way about brand. We're not all Nike. We're not all Coca-Cola, nor should we necessarily aim to be. You know what it's like to execute on a shoestring with a big team behind you. And you haven't been afraid to confront the sort of politics that go on, especially when you're representing marketing in the C-suite. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your career journey, just looking back. Are there any specific experiences or people that have had a particularly big impact on your marketing philosophy today and your approach to leading a marketing team? Yeah, absolutely. And the easy story here is around my journey from my home country of Australia all the way through to the United States. And I started my career like many folks. I had my major in university as marketing. I started working for an ad agency, working for various different clients. And through that journey, I was quickly dawned on this idea that I wanted a little bit more. I wanted to challenge myself and wanted to really represent brands at the highest level. It's no secret the Australian market is a little bit small, so I took a chance. I came to America and I went backwards. Technically speaking, I went to a position that was lower pay, lower responsibilities, wasn't managing team members. But what it quickly drilled into me is the idea, and I love how you put it, Casey, of marketing the marketer. And what I mean by that is as much as we have these abilities of deploying various different strategies through various different channels, we're doing brand work, we're doing demand work, we're trying to do internal comms. But at the end of the day, the biggest key to whether someone is successful or not in marketing is how well they market themselves and specifically within their organizations. It's no secret that Unfortunately, we have been burdened with the sins of the past. We've been burdened with folks who think we're just the party people. We've been burdened with people who think we just make things look nice. And no other field other than marketing has so many preconceived notions from so many others of the C-suite. And that's the thing that I'm always encouraging up and coming marketers to really cement for themselves. It's like, you don't hear the finance department having to justify their existence. You don't hear the sales department justifying their existence. Yet for some reason, us as marketers are constantly fielding questions around, is this the right strategy? Is this the right tactic? And if you can align yourself very quickly to be someone who uses marketing to drive business results, 
suddenly a lot of those questions just completely disappear. Absolutely. I've heard you on a previous podcast and in other places talking about the movement and sort of transition of marketing overall from the days where it was all about like splashy creative to, you know, what you've referred to as growth hacking, this leaning into performance marketing. That resonates a lot with what you just said about like this urgency to prove business value. It's all about metrics and metrics. And you've talked about sort of the dangers of leaning too far into either of those categories. So can you talk for just a second about that sort of philosophy and how that informs your approach? What do you think the right balance is? Yeah. So the balance has to come somewhere in the middle and here's why it has to come in the middle because if you lean into the first style this is creating really good looking campaigns and it drives interest and engagement and you think oh yeah this is the fun marketing work i'm getting to do this is the reason i got into the field and that resonates with a lot of different marketers that's why they even got interested in the first place the problem is those are vanity metrics and those vanity metrics are seen through every day of the week by C-suite. You start talking about those types of terms and their eyes glaze over. They just think, oh, here's another marketer who doesn't get it, who just wants to focus on doing their fun little things without tying it to the rest of what the business needs. Now, conversely, if you go all the way to the other side, which I think is where the sins of growth hacking have started to manifest themselves, you have people that are so focused on demand, so focused on the metrics that they forget that our superpower is understanding people at a very core level, understanding why they think the way they do, why they buy the way they do, how they think about your brand versus other brands. Like all of these concepts while models and metrics can give you an indicator, it doesn't tell you everything. And so the thing that I'm always encouraging marketers to do is how do you get that balance? One, you want to look at metrics in a directional sense. So that gives you an idea of if your tactics are working, but you also want to look at the qualitative feedback. And this is where you should be the person who spends the majority of your time outside your company, because everyone else in your company is going to be very internally focused. And rightly or wrongly, that ends up meaning that a lot of different departments speak from a place of ego. And this is very damaging. Like if you do that, you're quickly going to find yourself out of alignment with the wider marketplace. And so you as a marketer, you can bring that perspective to the C-suite. You can say, hey, it's great that we think this is our strongest suit, but here is five other companies that are all saying the same thing. So this message isn't going to work for us. It's not a true differentiator. And when you're bringing that sort of competitive intel, that sort of market research, that is the ace up your sleeve. It can give you the breathing room to do some of the fun things because people will believe you. They'll say that, oh, you've battle tested it. You understand how to measure success. You understand what we're trying to accomplish, all of those metrics, but you also understand there is a qualitative element to what you are doing. 
Absolutely. I love that idea because it's really marketing has to be almost the customer advocate, right? We have to be the voice of the customer within the organization in a way that, you know, sales is probably the other department that's obviously speaking to customers most frequently, but we really have to provide that extra element outside of product, outside of our features, outside of what we think our value proposition is, you know, what do people care about? So I think that's a great transition into talking about brand building and specifically, how you get customers to care about your brand. So you've said nobody cares about your brand until everybody does. Can you explain what you mean by that and how that's informed your approach to brand building and marketing? Yeah, so it's a very contrarian perspective because a lot of marketers love to talk about brand. And even in the last couple of years, we're seeing a resurgence of the idea of brand. People have realized, oh, brand is a force multiplier. It can increase conversion rates. It can make people want to spend more money with your company than someone else. But the problem is, is everyone uses it as an excuse. The way I like to think about brand is about reputation and specifically name me a company And does a certain idea come to your head? Now, if you have a Coca-Cola, an Apple, a Nike, ideas are coming into your head spontaneously. Most brands do not have that. And so this is why you need to think about it from a concentric model because quickly what you will see is C-suite executives come to you saying, oh, and I'm going to use the flavor of the month at the moment, why can't we do what Mattel did? Arby is everywhere. I see them over time. It's like, yeah, they spent $150 million on that. And if you don't have the budget, which chances are, if you're listening to this, you may not. There might be one or two who has that budget, but most of us don't. We need to think what I call a concentric circle model. And what does that mean? You start with your true fans. The true fans are going to be your long-term customers that you have right now and your employees. And why do you start with these two? You start with your long-term customers because when you pull out the insights of why they wanted to work with you, you can do what I like to call client cloning. You can take those aspects of why someone chose to work with you and you can find similar clients and pitch them with the same messaging because everyone does this they try and think oh we're such a great brand we're such a great service provider product whatever it is and they always use their own words never do that you want to use the words that your customers describe your solution or your service as. Because when you use their words, there are other people just like them who are going to resonate with those words. It's no secret that language is actually the key of how humans understand the world around them. And so you don't want to be coming from your own ego. You want to be coming from a place of what do your customers use? Now, once you take that a little bit further to prospective customers and you start expanding it a little bit more, then you can start building into the next concentric circle. Who are the next round of customers who are going to be your biggest fans? And then you can start looking at prospective employees. Who are people who are going to resonate with the types of stories and the types of clients you're all going to want to work with or the types of products you're trying to build? Because that's going to bring a talent loop in. And then you can expand even further. And that's the final concentric circle. This is where you're starting to influence press and wider audiences. And this 
at this stage is when you're getting into the realm of the Nike and the Coca-Colas and the Apples. But it's very important to start from that smaller subset first, because otherwise you are going to commit a cardinal sin. You are going to force a situation where your time horizons are so long that the C-suite just won't have time. You know, we know we live in some pretty economically turbulent times. We know the average tenure of a CMO is down to about 13 months. So rather than throw up your hands and go, no one trusts me to be long-term enough, instead, think about the concentric circle model because then you can get a short-term win, a medium-term win, and a long-term win. And if you get a little bit of those early wins, suddenly you have the trust to do the bigger long-term brand building initiatives that you're going to have to do in order to conquer the world with your brand. I love that. So you're talking about like orienting your roadmap almost in a way around who you're targeting and how you're earning that audience. You almost have to earn the right to get to that next level, which totally resonates with me. And so I want to go back to that first inner circle. And you talked about existing customers and you really hit a struck a chord there because we work with a lot of clients at Skyward. And I think if you've been run into the issue internally, depending on how large your organization might be, marketing can be pretty siloed from sales, which is sort of a first like, eh, why would this ever be the case? But marketing will do all this expensive agency-driven persona work and you know, looking at your segments and getting all these demographic data. And even if you're B2B, there's sort of like all this irrelevant information about Michael the marketer that you're going after. I market to marketers, so that's why I'm thinking about Michael the marketer. But there will be these moments where we've worked with brands that recognize suddenly sales saying, oh no, marketing has no idea. That's not who I'm going after. Like I'm going after the VP or the CISO, they're marketing to the manager, let's say, or something like that. So how do you go about validating who the existing customer is? You obviously talked about who your client base is, like that seems pretty obvious, but What other ways are you collecting information to validate that? And then also to think about what the language of the customer is as a marketing team. Yeah, so there's two big tactics here that I want to share with everyone. And one of them aligns with sales and the other one doesn't. And here's why. The first one is very simple. And most people in these days should have some form of call recording software. Most sales teams have it just to coach their team. You need access to those recordings. There is many tools that are cropping up these days within AI that can start to pull out common themes of those particular call recordings that even the sales rep might miss. But if you start seeing those similar language, those similar words, then you can start pulling out from those existing calls. But here's why you can't trust sales completely. And it's not even sales' fault. We need to remember that when a client or a prospective client is speaking to sales, there is a commercial reason. And that commercial reason can cloud the judgment. It means that perhaps the prospect's being truthful, but maybe they're playing a little bit hardball. Maybe they're saying something that's not quite true because they're trying to negotiate for discounts or more features. And so that means you need to go to another place where you can focus on getting the truthful answer. Now, how do you do that? Two strategies I've got here. One, good customer success managers. 
I've seen firsthand how clients can be more open with a customer success or a customer support person because they don't feel that same commercial transaction. So you can start to get insights there. And my other big tip is if you have any form of review platform that you're gathering in the B2B space, we talk about G2 and Captera, but it could even be Google reviews. Whatever that is, funnel your clients through that because the great thing about those independently verified platforms is they're not speaking to you. They're speaking about you and you may well have asked them to do it, but in terms of the physical testimonial, it's being gathered by someone else. That is crucial because you start to see a level of honesty come through from the client of truly why did they actually choose to buy your service? And when you start to pull out those terms and those phrases and the jargon of the customer through those testimonials, then you can start putting them into word clouds and you can start finding, oh, 90% of our clients use these three phrases. So we need to change our positioning of our landing pages because they're not including these phrases. Like that's what matters to a customer. When you start to do that, you really are doing the hard work that really comes into figuring out why someone buys. Because at the end of the day, sales is also doing this, but not quite in the same way. Because sales is just trying to figure out how a prospect thinks in order to shape them towards a purchase. Marketing tends to take this more holistic approach of what are all of the nebulous things that my prospect is thinking about? What are the actual reasons they're telling me why they're buying? What are the reasons they're telling me that perhaps are not as obvious? No. What do I mean by this? Classic example. You might have a customer come to you and say, hey, we're looking to build a new product. We think you guys are the right guys and we want to increase the revenue. Great. Very obvious. That's what the company wants. The hidden reason, maybe that person is a VP and wants to be a C-suite executive. Maybe if they get this initiative right, that's what gets them that C-suite title. And sales, quite honestly, doesn't particularly care about that. If they are able to make the case and it gets the person to sign the contract, they can move on and hunt their next target. But for a marketer who needs to be thinking about the full customer lifecycle, not only from sale all the way through to close, upsell, cross-sell, and customer advocacy at the end of it, we need to be obsessed with that full life cycle and how a customer always is thinking about our service, our product in relation to everything else on their plate. I love that. And talk about being able to bring more value to the C-suite when you're able to say like, actually, we found from independent research that this is the case. So I love those tips and the caveats that you called out, I think are really critical. I want to talk about something else related to where our customers are looking for information, where they exist, especially when you have finite resources, which most of us do to work with focus, right? Not only just topic focus, but like channel focus too. Everybody's so tempted to be like, oh, we have to be on every channel when the number of channels are exploding today. And so if we aren't on Twitter, you know, I don't know any CISOs who are looking for technology solutions on Twitter. So maybe there's like a brand awareness play, but when you have to pick and choose, I feel like you're an expert at like thinking really clearly about how to make smart bets. So can you talk a little bit about any tips that you have for identifying like channel strategies? 
Yeah, so for channel strategy, I think there's two elements of it. There's the demand capture side and the demand creation side. So the demand capture side should build the majority of your funnel, especially in those early stages, because let's be honest, it doesn't matter if your thesis is correct, if you're out before you ever get to mature any of those theses to its fullest extent. So when you're thinking about that, you need to think about the places that your customers are residing. So naturally, this is where some of the traditional things like Google search, things like LinkedIn, especially in the B2B space, the table stakes. And you always want to focus on that because you can quickly prove that you know what you're doing. And that gives you leeway with those C-suite executives to go, yeah, I should probably give this marketing team more budget. Let's see what else they can come up with that is more creative. So that's the demand capture side. But as anyone knows, is that only a certain percentage, and it's a very small percentage of customers are in market at any one time. And so you want to look at how you can influence the out of market, particularly driving them towards being in market. And this is where I think exactly what you're saying, Casey, you see people try and spray across so many different platforms and they think that that will get the results they want. It just won't. The key is with any platform or with any strategy, the vast majority of the results comes to that top 1% and then the top 10%. And then finally, there's a long tail of people getting a few results, but nothing major. And that only comes from a mindset of how do I dominate this platform? Not how do I do 10 platforms? How do I be the very best at one platform? And you've got two things to think about here. One, do you have the skill set within your team to dominate a particular platform? That's important because even if it's a mature platform, you can still win if you have the A team at that specific platform, or you need to be thinking about what is the thing on the horizon? So how do I do this? I always like to look at future forward indicators. So being in professional services, we're a bit of a laggard. We tend to have things come into our industry a little bit later. But rather than look at the very top of the sphere of like what is the most future forward industry, I look at the one just ahead of us. I look at the SaaS industry because the SaaS industry for my particular industry is about one to two years ahead. So I quickly identify, hey, video is a big thing right now in the SaaS space. That means it's going to come to ours in a couple of years. Well, if I can go first and cement an audience, then I'm going to get an incumbent advantage, at least in that particular channel. Because I think this is one of those cardinal sins that again keeps happening is like marketers try and do everything because all of their colleagues are telling them, do this, do that, do that, do that. And you need to focus on, hey, is there a channel that is greenfield that has an opportunity for my specific industry? Even if other industries have already been in it, you don't have to come up with the most novel idea. You just need to come up with a novel idea for your specific space. And so if you're able to do that, that's when you're going to start seeing way outsized results. And the big secret here is that the other 10 things that everyone told you to do, they're going to forget about them. 
because the results speak for themselves. Now, that's not to say if you mature and focus three areas and you get more resources, great. Now you can start doing five things at once, 10 things at once. That it is a complete fallacy to think I can do 15, 20 things phenomenally. The practical way that I talk about this is each initiative in your marketing team should have one owner and one owner specifically, and they should be fully responsible for it. And it's not to say they won't help with other things, but that should be the majority of their time. And if you can't put a single person all in on an initiative, then you should not be doing it because otherwise you're just going to spread you're going to have scattered attention. And when you have that scattered attention, you're never going to get as good a result as if you focused 100% on it. I think that's exceptional advice. So focus on where you can have an impact, where you can really excel. Make sure there's one owner of each of those initiatives and then have sort of two streams of thinking, right? The immediate and look towards what's next and start building there so that you have this continuous compounding effect of growth. That's fantastic. And I want to talk about that second audience that you mentioned in that inner circle, which is the employee. You know, marketers often think about employee advocacy, right? It's like about feeding your employees tweets to make sure that they're amplifying the brand on social. I think you're thinking about this slightly differently. So can you describe what you mean by focusing on the employee as well as a marketer as part of that inner ring before you move on to your next step? Yeah, so I think the big fallacy that marketers fall into with employee advocacy is they try and do a one-size-fits-all approach here. And I understand that that can be tempting, particularly if it's a lower priority, you're just trying to check a box. But here's why it doesn't work. Because you've got two arms of employees you're trying to influence. One, you're trying to influence talent acquisition. It's no secret, even in the midst of today's layoffs, there is still, within certain positions, a huge fight for talent. And so you're still going to have to convince the A players why they should spend time at your company, not anywhere else. Because the difference between an A player and a B player is immense, especially when you multiply it across an organization. It can be the difference between your company winning or sliding towards bankruptcy. Like That's just the cold, hard, harsh truth of that. On the other side of the equation, you need to think about the employees. Now, when marketers do the typical employee advocacy program, they're just trying to mass blast a bunch of posts, trying to get a little bit more visibility, but they don't bother to ask the why. Why does an employee care about this? They have so many other things they need to be doing with their lives. And this is where you can be arming employees into different working groups based on what matters to them. So what does this mean? Some of your employees are going to be super keen about social. So you put them into a social pod. Like we're going to reinforce each other's content. We're going to help you with content creation. We're going to give you ideas, give you material. That's one side of it. Then we might want to look at another side. Some people like doing events. They like hosting meetups. So you give them ammunition of like, ah, here is some pre-built deck templates that are fully customizable, but also with the company brand for you to host your product meetup, your QA meetup, your design meetup. That's another great way. And then we've got another angle of folks who might want to do the speaking. So you help them with editing their abstract. You help them identify 
different conferences to pitch themselves to. The irony is, again, the same principle of the focus is that when you start to split out these small groups into areas they really care about, you get a cumulative effect of your employee advocacy that is far in excess versus trying to force everyone into the same round hole of getting people to do the same action over and over again. And this is so important because once they see that the marketing team is super energized to help them spread their message, to help them advance their career. Ironically, it ends up with two things. One, you get those better results, which is great for marketing. But two, you're going to have HR being your biggest advocate because, hey, suddenly our talent retention numbers are through the roof because people feel like they're growing here. People feel excited and motivated to put in effort. And why does this matter? I always say a very harsh truth, and a lot of C-suite executives like to disagree with me on this, that it is 100% true. Any person in your organization is tempted to only give you 51% effort, just enough not to get fired, but not too much that it really burns them out. They collect the paycheck. Your job as an organization and your job for each of your managers is to get people up to 80%, 90%, 100%. Because think of the delta. Even if you got someone to care at 80%, that means they are caring 29% more than your average employee. And you have multiplied that across every employee in your organization. Suddenly, you as a small organization can be challenging some of the biggest brands in your space. And you can see why do startups consistently outperform incumbents because they're all focused on how can we all win together. They have that challenger mindset against those incumbents. And so when you unlock that, when you harness that, suddenly some magic can really happen. I think this is a huge tip that people don't discuss enough. And I've been in organizations where this was a case among employees thinking that marketing's out of touch. They're off doing their thing. They're not in touch with what we're doing every day. This helps to solve that problem in a huge way. But I love this idea of pods and almost like a channel strategy within the organization that's really authentic. I mean, it's built around people's passion and understanding and supporting people personally in their careers and just thinking about as a professional services organization, what does that do for client retention? You have people who are passionately delivering who are doing what it takes because they're passionate about what they're doing and feeling supported by the organizations they want to put their all in. You talk about that compounding effect. Like I'd be very curious to look at the churn rate on the client side, especially in a professional services organization from implementing a program like this to like six, 12 months down the line. So love that. And then you talked about moving to that next ring in the concentric circle. When do you know it's time to move on and expand your circle? So the key thing here is you are going to have to do it relatively quickly. Certainly the first circle that we mentioned about influencing those existing employees and the existing customers, you want to nail that in the first 90 days. And you want to do that for two reasons. One, again, as I mentioned before, that marketing is kind of viewed with a little bit of suspicion. People feel like, oh, I guess I need a marketing department, but do I need it? Can I patch it together through other parts of the organization? So you need to ruin that 90 days. You win that 90 days and then suddenly a lot of your problems will dissipate. 
So that's for your first circle. Beyond that, you want to start building those customer acquisition for those prospective clients. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't particularly matter how you measure it, but you want to show that your efforts are lifting up sales. Because at the end of the day, we know this story time and time again. Why does it happen? Sales versus a quota number, they get blamed, they start looking for others to blame. And needless to say, marketing is usually first in the firing line. Now, if you want to avoid that problem that manifests across your organization, I think Gartner had it as sales and marketing misalignment cost the economy like a trillion dollars. Like it's ridiculous how much it costs the economy in terms of that. But what that means is that you need to build the faith. And how do you build the faith? You need to show with the language that sales uses, and again, I sympathize, this is not a language that most marketers like, but you need to look at the data. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to come into a battle for how many leads are sourced, because that is a losing battle. But start looking more holistically. Start looking at sales qualified pipeline. If you're both measured on pipeline, suddenly your incentives align. If you're both measured on how much of that pipeline converts into revenue, if you can start looking at even secondary metrics, this is where you start seeing people focus in on, hey, if I could cut my sales cycle from 90 days to 60 days, now I'm getting a whole extra month's worth of revenue that is being paid to the company versus me spending the company's money on my salary to try and close that claim. Am I increasing conversion rates? Like all of these factors are influenced by marketing, but a lot of marketers don't lean into it because let's be honest, you know, numbers are our forte. And I wish I had a more sympathetic view here that could help every marketer sleep at night. The fact of the matter is our field has changed more than any other. Like double entry accounting hasn't changed in the last 67 years. But marketing has changed massively in the last five to 10. However, what I would say is now is our time because you're seeing that many of the different other departments are waking up to this reality. They're realizing sales might be the ones whose heads roll if we don't hit the number, but they can't just dire for dollars like they used to in the 1980s. And then similarly, it doesn't matter if I build a cool product, if no one hears about it or no one sees about it, doesn't matter what I built. And if no one sees any value in it, they're not going to pay us any money for it. There are three of those things all come into what a marketer's skill set is. And so if you can learn at least even just a basic level of that numerical lingo, you're going to put yourself in a position where suddenly, hey, sales, yeah, I understand how you're helping us. Let me bring you involved more into our quarterly prospecting efforts. And then you can start really having a dynamic of, I understand things that happen right now, it's probably within sales control. Like, let's be honest, if it's within the current quarter, it's going to be for sales. But if we expand it over how we're going to hit our number for the entire year, that's when we're intersecting. That's where marketing and sales put it together, go after those prospective customers, clones enough of them, and then we just create that feedback loop. 
marketing creates those testimonials, starts putting those into case studies, starts putting them into press, starts winning awards, gets all of that accolade, and suddenly sales has even more material to arm themselves with. I love that. And you hit on a few things that I think are really important with that proving business value. And we've been so tied to volume for such a long time. And it's not necessarily we drove vanity metrics like 100,000 more page views. It's like if your conversion rate didn't change and actually maybe decreased because of volume and you weren't converting more people, right? Look at your rates, time, as you noted, critically important time to close deals. That means more business can come through. You're doing something right. You're optimizing that sales process, which is so critical. There's like an impact metric there. It's like how much are you feeding content and how much is that content being used by other departments outside of just the marketing channel department. So I think you've raised some really important points there. And I want to talk a little bit about your way of looking at coming into a new organization. You talked about you fairly recently transitioned into the role as VP of Marketing at Formula Monks. Congratulations, by the way. I want to hear as someone who's known for sort of challenging the typical marketing playbook, you came into a role a lot of folks, as you noted, tenure among marketers, you know, is decreasing. A lot of people listening might be recently transitioned into a new role. What's your landing strategy? You come in, what do you look at first? What did you know needed to change or get done immediately? Yeah. So this one was particularly easy, funnily enough, because there wasn't many particular practices that I had to rip out. First and foremost, you want to evaluate the lay of the land within your first 30 days of like what's being done right now and do you keep it, scale it, or kill it. That is the most critical. Luckily, given that this was a brand new brand, it was three companies that merged into one at the end of Q1, I had a pretty fresh slate. But I still had to go back into the historicals of those three existing brands. I had to see, okay, what had worked in the past for them? Where was their conceptions and misconceptions? Because this is the number one thing, right? When you go into a new org, you can eventually convince people of your philosophy. But if you mandate it from day one, you're not going to get many wins. And so I saw this first and foremost with a tactic that we'd applied in many different scenarios, but that was met with skepticism. And that, funnily enough, was curated events. We run these very intimate dinners. We invite high-level prospects to them, and we spend the evening not talking about business. We just talk about like what's happening in their life. We talk about the latest in technology. Naturally, AI is a common theme right now, but last year it was blockchain. Year before that, it was IoT. And that allows us to have a conversation with a potential client that could bet in the all the way through to a closed deal or a reference or a referral or anything of that nature. This was met with incredible skepticism. And rather than give everyone, here is our six-month plan for events, let's do a trial event, let's invite some of those C-suite executives who specifically are skeptical and let them experience it for themselves. I think this is one of those early ways that you can get a lot of 
victory for yourself that gives you the room because you and I both know a series of marketing strategies that are likely going to generate the majority of results. But in those first 90 days, you're trying to get one thing and one thing alone, and that is trust. You're trying to get people to trust your judgment call so that they don't tell you, oh, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Because then you're not a strategist, you're just an executor. That's it. And you never want to be in that situation because you're just going to be running after your tail and never really making enough ground. You're always going to feel like you're overwhelmed and having more work to do. And so think about how you can piece out a few little experiments to get some few little indicators. Because when you start, you're going to have to fight against a couple of things. You're going to have to fight against the sins of your predecessor. You're also going to have to fight against those assumptions. And so if you can create a small way to prove value early in like a small consulting engagement in many ways is how you could conceptualize it, suddenly that experiment is going to get more money, more budget. Now, how do you know you've run this? This is the word that I got from a former CEO. He said to me after I'd been in the role for a year, you know what, Patrick, I can put more money into marketing because of all the departments. If I put a dollar into yours, I get the highest return. And if he's talking in those terms, those financially ROI-driven terms, you have won the game because we know this. Resources are limited across every department in an organization. And in order for you to get them, you need to prove that your value to the organization is better than another department's because we sympathize with that. Like there is just only so much money that can go around. And unfortunately, marketing by not advocating for themselves in the right way usually ends up having the short end of the stick. And then you see the stories. Oh, my CEO expects me to deliver the same revenue, but with half the budget. It's like, well, that's a very unfortunate situation you're in. But if you've built the use case and you built the ROI model first, from the very get-go, you're not going to have that problem. Yeah, that note from the CEO, absolute gold. That's like the nirvana of marketers. See what I mean, folks, about being a Patrick being a marketer's marketer? This is amazing. So I think a lot of what you already said can apply even if you sort of missed the boat, right? Like you're in a role, you're like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. I'm an executor. I'm just getting orders. I'm an order taker. Literally, we have like an order form process that comes into marketing. I need this content. And then we give them a timeline and you're a project manager at that point. So any other tips for... If you've already kind of lost the trust beyond what you've said, anything that you would advise someone to do in that position? Yeah. So it still can be one again. And especially right now, this is where it's actually a really good time because in the time that we're in now of volatility and people being a little tense, there is one thing and one thing alone that will save a company's problems. And that's more revenue. So if you can show and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you don't have to go out and, and sell something, but hey, why don't I run this initiative, something really small, get creative if you can repurpose another budget somewhere else. And so it makes like it's the exact same spend. That's a really good way of doing it. And then just measure it just for a month. Just do something for a month and then report back, hey, this initiative suddenly generated 
10 new conversations with these companies that we were never speaking to before. When you can do something like that, even with a very small, scrappy budget, then you suddenly unlock this idea for your C-suite of like, oh, wait, what else could they do if I arm them with more money? So even if you've lost trust, there is still ways to win it back. You just need to reconfigure the things you're doing. And you have to be comfortable knowing that some things will go by the wayside. That's okay. Like I said before, people might get a little annoyed at you right now, but they will forget about it if you can show some level of result that matters to the business. And this is a perfect time to do it because we all need more revenue. We all need more pipeline. We all need to be more creative. And so if we can find those models that work for our businesses, we're going to be the heroes. Yep. I love it. Invest in that project, you know, scrape together the money, borrow if you have to, and be prepared to speak in terms of those business metrics to prove that that quick win was a win for the whole business. So I think this is amazing. Our listeners are going to have gotten a lot of value out of this conversation, Patrick. I want to, if you don't mind sticking around for just a second, take you through a speed round of questions, if I may. So I have a question set for you, just off the top of your head, one word or few words, what comes to mind? Ready? Yeah, let's go. All right. So as a marketer, what keeps you up at night? Satisfying clients. What keeps you going? Serving my team. What marketing term do you love? Engagement. What marketing term do you hate? Personalization. <laughs> That's mine too. <laughs> what emoji best describes the current state of marketing? The sweat drop on the top of the forehead. <laughs> Right. Exciting times, right? But you've got to be prepared to put in the sweat equity. <laughs> and finally, you know, that age old conundrum, quality or quantity? Quality. Love it. And finally, this is not a one word answer, but are there any books you've read recently? Any podcasts you've listened to? Movies you've watched that you'd recommend folks check out? Yep. I'm going to be a massive contrarian because I know a lot of people like to look at like business books. Uh, a lot of people like to look at like self-help, a lot of those different areas. Not saying those aren't valuable, but your key result as a marketer is understanding people and understanding people from all walks of life. And so here I encourage people, I recently read an autobiography from a man named Spanion, who is a former criminal, now is a music artist and rapper. It's really fascinating to read a perspective of someone, especially with someone who was middle-class family in the suburbs, to read something from someone who has a completely different life experience from you. If you're able to do that and find out those sorts of perspectives, you are going to be a better human and a better marketer. Could not agree more. I think that goes the same for thinking about diverse perspectives in team building, workforce building as a broader organization, the creators that you bring on, different perspectives is only enriching. So thank you for that amazing suggestion. And thank you, Patrick, for joining the show. Loved having you. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for listening to Content Disrupted, brought to you by Skyward. Stay up to date on the latest ideas and insights in brand building and content marketing by visiting our website at skyward.com. Join us for our next episode, where we'll continue to challenge marketing norms and inspire you with fresh strategies for growing business through brand storytelling. See you there.